Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the book of Numbers with James Jordan. And here, Jordan will be discussing Numbers chapters 9 through 14 as Israel is on the move. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the book of Numbers. We are in chapter 9, and we have seen the people of God constituted as an army and set up as an army camp, a clean environment like a Garden of Eden that's supposed to be kept pure from satanic attack and ready to serve the Lord. Now we come to the departure of the people from Mount Sinai and their arrival in the area of Kadesh from which they are supposed to launch their assault into the land of Canaan to establish a new land of Eden on the earth. And in chapter 9 verse 15 we begin the section of departure. And the first thing we read about is the cloud of God and that's in verses 15 and 23 of chapter 9. Now on the day the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning, so it was continually. The cloud would cover it in the day, and the appearance of fire at night. Now, this actually happened on the first day of the first month of the year, back in Exodus chapter 40. There is one cloud that has fire within it. Over in the book of Ezekiel, we get a picture of what this cloud actually was composed of. The cloud obscured man's vision of God's holiness for man's own protection, but at night you could see through the white vapor cloud and the fire that was inside was apparent. And this fiery appearance was actually the throne of God carried on the wings of four cherubim and a model of his heavenly throne. The tabernacle itself was a copy of God's heavenly throne and the permeation of the tabernacle with the cloud and the subsequent hovering of the cloud over the tabernacle served to bring that to pass. The cloud permeated the tabernacle making it God's own and identifying with it and then hovered over it in order to show that it was God's dwelling place. Now, when the cloud was lifted from over the tent, then the sons of Israel were set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. So we have a picture that the cloud would lift up and form a pillar and begin to move out away from the camp in a certain direction. At that point, the priests would go into the tabernacle and take the furniture and cover it with the cloths and get everything completely covered up, and then they would lead the Kohathites in. The Kohathites would carry the furniture out, and then the Gershonites and Marerites would collapse the tent itself and all of the hangings and put them on carts and get ready to move. And meanwhile, the tribes would start to move out, and Israel would go on the march, led by the cloud. And when God decided they had arrived at where he wanted them to be, the cloud would stop, the pillar of the cloud would stop and be right at a certain point, and they would get to that point, set the tabernacle up, and 
then the people would group around it according to the positions that they had been assigned back in the second chapter of Numbers. And here in these verses we're told all of this information. When the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. And according to how many days it stayed, that's how long they would remain. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, then they did set out. Now, immediately in chapter 10, there's an unfortunate chapter break here. It really should be in the middle of chapter 9, or it could easily be there. At the beginning of chapter 10, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Make two trumpets of silver of hammered work and use them for summoning the congregation and having the camp set out. Now we just saw that this is what the cloud does. When they saw the cloud move, that's when they set out. Here we have the trumpets serving the same basic purpose. Now just as the tabernacle is an architectural reproduction of the structure of the cloud that's inside the cloud, God's house, so the trumpets are an earthly image of the sound that the cloud makes. To see that, we need only look back at Exodus 19, when the cloud came down and hovered over Mount Sinai. It says in verse 16, It came about on the third day, when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and God spoke to the people. Well, these trumpets of silver are images of that heavenly trumpet sound and they are used to gather the people together. It says, When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to the doorway. When only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the thousands, will assemble before you. Those are the princes of each tribe, the twelve princes. They will assemble. And so the trumpets are used to gather the people together just as they were gathered at Mount Sinai by the cloud and by God's heavenly trumpet sound. And then... If you blow an alarm, a particular kind of sound, then the tribes that are pitched on the east will set out. When you go a second time, those who are pitched on the south side shall set out, and so forth. Well, then the trumpets lead them on their march, and that also is what the cloud does. And so these trumpets are an earthly, man-controlled image of what God does in the cloud and with his own tremendous trumpet sound, and that's why they're given here. Finally, they're told to blow the trumpets on particular occasions of worship to remind them of the Lord their God, because on those worship occasions God was with them, whether they saw the cloud or not. All right, that's the cloud and its earthly representations that would lead the people in their military march, the trumpets in particular. So we think of trumpets in connection with the army and calling the army together and playing taps and reveille and all the rest. We don't think of that as an image of God summoning his army, but in the Bible you see there's this additional dimension to it. The holy army is summoned by trumpets that image God's own trumpet blast. Well, we come then to the journey and the departure in chapter 10, 11 to 28. It came about in the second year and the second month on the 20th of the month. That's the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread for that second alternative Passover that we looked at. And if you look at your chronological chart, you'll see it. As soon as the Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread was finished, then they set out. Just as they left Egypt after the Passover, so now they leave Sinai after the Passover. 
The sons of Israel went on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. We haven't gotten there yet, of course. We are going to have to march to the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time, according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their armies, went first. And after the tribe of Judah, then we have the tabernacle. After Judah and the two tribes that are with him. Remember, there are four armies. Judah is the first army with Asakar and Zebulun. And Judah goes first, the royal tribe paving the way. Then comes the tabernacle carried on covered wagons by Gershon and Merari. That's the cloth and the boards. That comes next after Judah. And after Judah, then comes the camp of Reuben, Reuben's army with Simeon and Gad with him. And then in the middle, we've got six tribes and now we're in the middle of the march. Then come the Kohathites carrying the holy objects with them, that is, the furniture of the tabernacle. Now what that meant was, it was commented on in verse 21, that when they arrived at a place, then the first people to get there would be Judah. Judah would clear the area. It's the first group of tribes that would come. And then the Gershonites and Merarites would arrive and set the tabernacle tent up. And then the sons of Reuben would be arriving while the tabernacle was being put up. And then the Kohathites would come with the furniture and they would move it in. And then the Aaronic priests would come in and uncover everything and set up the worship. Well, then would come the rest of the tribes, the tribes of Ephraim and the tribes that were associated with Dan. And thus, that was the order in which they would march. It makes sense, and it also does, in a linear form, the same thing that we saw in our diagram of the armies of Israel in chapter 2. We still have the central worship parts of the tabernacle right in the middle of the tribes. Well, that's the order of the march. Then we have a notice here about Hobab, the son of Ruel, or Jethro, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. Moses says to him, We're setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we will do you good. The Lord has promised good concerning Israel. Remember, these Midianites were converted. They were descendants of Abraham, and they were faithful to the Lord. Jethro had worshipped with God's people, and so during this whole year, his son, and of course who had grown up with Moses during the 40 years that Moses lived in their home, and his people had stayed there in Mount Sinai with Israel for a year. Well, uh, Hobab initially rejects the idea. He says, I will not come, but will rather go to my own land and relatives. But Moses says, please don't leave us inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you'll be his eyes for us. You're familiar with this place, and you can help us out. And it will be, if you go with us, it will come about that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. In other words, we'll include you in the blessings. Well, we're not told here what Hobab's response is, but if we look at Judges chapter 1, verse 16, we'll find that they did choose to go along with Israel, and they settled in the land with the tribe of Judah. Well, then we have an interesting statement in verses 33 and 4. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And that's just exactly what they were supposed to do out of Egypt. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go a three days' journey into the wilderness that they may worship me. Well, now they set out on a three-day journey from Sinai. And 
what this does, and we'll look at this in a little while, is it sets up a series of parallels between the exodus from Egypt and the march from Sinai. So we have a three-day journey to their first stop at Tabera in the wilderness of Paran. Well, then we have a song. And remember when they came out of Egypt, they sang a song, and here we have the song that was sung when the ark set out, verses 35 and 36. Rise up, O Lord, and let thy enemies be scattered. Let those who hate thee flee before thee. And whenever the ark came to rest, then Moses was saying, Return thou, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel, to your army. So the idea here again is of God's army on the march and the Lord as their leader. Well, now we have arrived at the wilderness of Paran. We have left Sinai and we have a series of rebellions here in the wilderness. And this, of course, parallels what happened when they came out of Egypt. There were three rebellions out of Egypt on the way to Sinai, and there are three rebellions out of Sinai on the way to Paran. The first rebellion we're not told much about. It's in chapter 11, 1 to 3. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. The fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. People cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tambera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Tambera means burning. Well, we don't know exactly what they complained about. Usually the complaints had to do with food. We're in Edenic language here. God had given man plenty of food to eat in the Garden of Eden. But because man chose the wrong food, he winds up starving from the tree of life. And God tends to bring that to people's mind by having them cry out to him for food. So that is the way it worked in Exodus. They didn't have water, they didn't have food, and they didn't have water again. Here we just have a complaint. We don't know exactly what the complaint, what the adversity was, but it is the first of the three complaints and rebellions, and we have judgment from God as a result. Now the remainder of chapter 11, verses 435, has to do with the complaint concerning the manna. This is the central of the three rebellions, just as it was in Exodus. In Exodus we had the bitter water, the manna, and then the water from the rock. Those were the three incidents. Here we have a general complaint, and then we have another long passage about manna, and then we'll have the complaint of Miriam and Aaron. There are actually two problems that come up in this second story. The first is that the people complain about the food, and the second is that Moses finds that he just can't bear the burden all alone, and he needs assistance. And both of these problems are dealt with here in Numbers 11. Let's read it. It says, verse 4, The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. We don't know if that refers to the mixed multitude or what. Another explanation is that those who did not have cattle did not have any animals that they could slaughter themselves, in other words, that were relatively poor, they complained because they were just never getting to eat any meat. But it spread to everybody. And so, wherever it started, it went to everybody. The sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat, flesh to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. It was free because they were slaves cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at 
except as manna. Interesting language here. It says there's nothing for our eyes. Back in Genesis chapter 2, it said that every tree that God made was a delight to the eyes. Well, this food of the tree of life that God is giving them is no longer delightful to our eyes. It says the manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance was like that of bdellium. We don't know what bdellium is, but the only other time it shows up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2. So again, we're being reminded of the Garden of Eden incident. And here we have people rejecting the tree of life, so to speak, and insisting on the tree of knowledge, forbidden food, food that God has not chosen to give them at this particular point. It says the people would go around and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. Its taste was like cakes baked with oil. Well, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, every man at the doorway of his tent. The anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was unhappy. And Moses said to the Lord, Why hast thou been so hard on thy servant? In other words, why have you been so hard on me? Why have I not found favor in thy sight that thou hast laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that thou shouldst say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land thou didst swear to their fathers? Where am I supposed to get meat to give all these people? For we before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all these people because it's too burdensome for me. If thou art going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. For I have found favor in thy sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Moses is real tired of it all by this point. Now, there were already elders in Israel, and we've seen that they were, well, we haven't seen this series, but if you were to look back at Exodus 18, you see that they were set up by Jethro as elders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Apparently, these people held the civil matters, but they weren't there to give moral and spiritual support to Moses. And Moses is finding himself alone with this difficulty. So, after Moses requests for help, the Lord gives him an answer and says he's going to take care of both problems. He says, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them up to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit that's upon you, and will put him upon them. And they will bear the burden of the people with you, so you will not bear it all alone. And then say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you will eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone will give us meat to eat, we will well off in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat. And you will eat not one day, not two days, not five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month. Till it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who was among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? It wasn't primarily the desire for meat, of course. It was primarily the unfair comparison between God's provision and what they had in Egypt and their desire to return to Egypt to get Egyptian food, forbidden food. We have here then two trees. We have forbidden food and we have the tree of life. And they are essentially rejecting the tree of life as bland and saying that they want forbidden food, the food of Egypt. And God says that he will give it to them just as he let Adam and Eve have what they wanted, but they will find it will be judgment to them, just as it was judgment to Adam and Eve. Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. That's the men who are on foot. The army, there's plenty more women and children. But thou hast said, I will give them meat in order that they may eat a whole month. Where are we going to get it all? And the Lord said, You'll find out. So, now we take care of the first problem. Moses needs help. 
Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 men of the people and stationed them around the tent. God put the Spirit upon them and they prophesied. We're told that two of the men, two of the 70 men, had not been able to make it, Eldad and Medan. And the Spirit rested upon them and they prophesied in the midst of the camp, which shows that they would be there distributing the help among the camp. Joshua was concerned about this and said, restrain them. He felt that Moses alone should be doing this, but Moses said, no, would that all God's people were prophets, the Lord would put his spirit upon them all, which of course is fulfilled in the new covenant at the day of Pentecost. So now there are these others who will help Moses with the burden, whether it's a psychological burden, what kind of burden it is, we're not specifically told how it worked. Then we find that there was a wind from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and they fell beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side all around the camp. Now it's noticeable it didn't fall inside the camp. Inside the camp was the manna, God's food. Outside the camp, in the unclean area, was where these quail fell. And the people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered quail. Then they spread them out around the camp to dry them out. They didn't have refrigeration back then, so they had to dry out their meat. It says that they were piled up all around the ground when they first found them, up to two cubits deep. Well, it says, while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. And the name of that place was called the Graves of Greediness, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. Well, that's the second rebellion. They were tired of the manna. They wanted forbidden food. God let them have it, just as he let Adam and Eve have it, but they found judgment along with it. We come then to the third of the rebellions, and that's the rebellion of Miriam and Aaron. It says that Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he would married a Cushite woman. Some have thought this is a second wife, that Zipporah was dead by that time, Others have suggested that this probably is the Korah, that the word Cushite is used because of the geographical location in which Jethro and his Midianites lived. There's no way to know for sure. And this is what they said. They started complaining about his wife because he had married a non-Israelite, see, that was racial prejudice. But what they were really concerned about is in verse 2, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us as well? That was their gripe between the two of them, and it says the Lord heard it. There's a message here about people who gripe against leadership. You may gripe about it in private, but the Lord hears it, and it can be dangerous. It says Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. In the Hebrew, it implies that he was humble in this situation, and at that time, which means that he would not defend himself, it would be necessary for God to defend him. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. This probably happened right while they were having their private conversation. The Lord came down in a pillar of clouds, stood at the doorway of the tent, called to Aaron and Miriam. When they both came forward, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet, the Lord, from among you, that's literally what it says, a very close identification between the prophet and the Lord. I will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. That's the way it's going to be with the prophets. You'll have visions and dreams. So if you're a prophet, 
expect to have visions and dreams. In the old covenant, we have the Bible now. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household, and with him I speak mouth to mouth. God never used visions to communicate truth to Moses. He spoke to him mouth to mouth, eyes openly, not in dark sayings. You know how often in the prophets we have symbolic language that's difficult to understand, but not with Moses. And there's plenty of symbolism in the Pentateuch, but not like there is in Daniel or Zechariah. Well, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant against Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. Well, when God withdraws, then judgment comes. You see, the presence of God preserves us from judgment, but when he withdrew, he withdrew life. And when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, just like snow. Aaron turned toward Miriam, and she was leprous. Now, why didn't this judgment fall on Aaron? Well, probably because he had to serve as high priest, and so he needed to remain ceremonially clean. But it felt just as bad to him as it did to her, because he was just as guilty. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, we got respect for Moses now. Aaron's going to call Moses Lord. Master, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we've acted foolishly and in which we've sinned. Don't let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, O oh God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, wouldn't she bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterwards she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. And then the people arrived at the wilderness of Paran. So they've arrived now. Now, this is an important incident because it shows that God would not tolerate any rebellion against Moses. If Aaron and Miriam could not rebel against Moses, and this is what happened to them, and everybody knew it, then surely there would be no more rebellions. And yet what we find in just a few short chapters is a series of rebellions against Moses and power moves against him. And it means that they fail to heed the warning of the story that was found here. Well, we've come now to the arrival in the area of Kadesh and the Lord's invitation to the people to go in and take the land. This corresponds to arriving at Mount Sinai after the Passover. And as we'll see, there are certain correspondences between what happened at Sinai and what happens here. The first thing they're told to do is come up with spies to go and spy out the land. The Lord said, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan that I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. Send a man from each of the father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, men who were the heads of the tribes. They're listed here for us. And Moses tells them to go and find out what the land is like, whether it's good or bad. Whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether positioned, how it's fortified, bring back the report on the land. It says it was the time of the first ripe grapes. There's nothing wrong with any of this. God wanted them to go and see the land and how good it was, and they did see how good it was. They brought back the grapes and they were supposed to give a good report. All this was designed to encourage the people. Moses knew that the people were not really strong, but they were weak. He knew that there were trees. He knew the land was fat rather than lean. So he was expecting a good report. Now, we have a description of the land and where they went, verses 21 and 24. 
They went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin. As far as Rehob at Lebohemath, they got up in the Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahim and Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. They came to a valley at Eshkol, which means clusters, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them with some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the sons of Israel had cut down from there. Notice that the land is said to be full of grapes. Remember that the Nazarite was not supposed to eat grapes. And so the idea seems to be that the goodness of the grape is a reward for the people, something that they can fight for. They're stuck with manna right now, but they're going to the land of milk and honey and grapes and wine. That's what they have to look forward to. But it's not good enough for them because we find that when they return from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, let's stop there and just meditate on the fact that when they were at Mount Sinai, Moses was gone up into God's heavenly land for 40 days, and then he brought back a report of what God wanted the people to do in setting up the symbolic Garden of Eden of the tabernacle. Well, now they are gone for 40 days, and they're supposed to bring back a report on what a wonderful land this is, just full of grapes and all kinds of fruits and things that they would want to eat and get them ready to want to take it. But when at the end of 40 days they returned, they brought back word to them and showed them the fruit of the land, and they said, We went into the land, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. But the people who live in the land are strong, the cities are fortified and large, and moreover we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak that were there. Amalek was living in the land of the Negev. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites are living in the hill country. Canaanites are living by the sea. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let's go take it. Let's by all means go up and take possession of it. We'll surely overcome it. After all, the Lord had defeated the Egyptians. These people are nothing compared to them. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against these people. They're too strong for us. So they gave out of the sons of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people who we saw are men of huge size. We saw Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Those are giants. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight. So we were in their sight. Then all the people lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and said, We wish we had died in the wilderness. So we come to rebellion and judgment. This is a golden calf incident on this occasion. And we'll find that God judges the people only this time. He sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, the rebellion is given us in verses 1 to 12. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. It will be better for us to return to Egypt. So they said, let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the sons of Israel. And Joshua and Caleb said, no, the land we pass through is a good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he'll bring us into this land, a land that flows with milk and honey. Just don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid of the people of the land. They're bread to us. We'll eat them up. Their protection has been removed from them. The Lord's with us. Don't fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of God appeared in the tent of the meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, 
How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs I perform in them that I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they? Now that's the same thing God has said at the golden calf incident. He said, get out of my way and let me judge these people. Let me alone that my anger may burn against them. This is in 32 verse 10. I will destroy them and I will make you a great nation. That's what the Lord has said at the golden camp, and that's what he says again here. But just as at the golden camp incident, Moses intercedes for the people. Moses says the Egyptians will hear of it. For by thy strength thou didst bring this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They've heard that thou, O Lord, art in the midst of the people. For thou, O Lord, art seen eye to eye when thy cloud stands over them, and thou dost go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou dost slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of thy fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as thou hast declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, that's what God has said to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 when he passed before him. And Moses gives exactly the same arguments here that he gave a year before at the golden calf. And the Lord responds to Moses just as he responded then. Moses at that time argued on the basis of God's name and God's reputation. And here he argues the same way. God's reputation and the name that God himself had given. So the Lord pardons them, but judges them for their sins. I pardon them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Everybody's going to know who the true God is. The men who have seen my glory and the signs that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land that I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. In your syllabus you have a list of the ten plus times that they had tested the Lord. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him to the land. And that includes Joshua as well. So, God tells the people that he will lead them away from these people that they are so afraid of. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long will I bear with this evil congregation who grumble against me? Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Even all your numbered men, according to the complete number from twenty years old and upward, who grumble against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to say to you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I'll bring them in, and they will know the land that you rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness. Your sons will be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days you spine out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear iniquities a year, forty years, and you will know my opposition. So that's the judgment that would come upon them. God spared them at Mount Sinai, but this time he wipes them out and raises up a new generation. Then a plague breaks out, just as a plague broke out against those who worshipped the golden calf. It says, verse 36 and 37, As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, 
Even those men who brought out a very bad report of the land died a plague before the Lord. So Moses spoke these words, and the people mourned, and then they decided that they would go ahead and take the land anyway. And we have folly added to their sin. They rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we have sinned, but we will go to the place the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Don't transgress again, the Lord has spoken. Why are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, lest you be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. The Amalekites and Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword. And that is exactly what happened. They went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country, but neither the ark of the covenant of God nor Moses left the camp, and the Amalekites and Canaanites struck them and beat them as far as Hormah. Well, that's where we'll stop in this lecture. We have certainly gone from a wonderful situation to a horrible one. We've seen them all reconstituted as God's army and given all kinds of provisions and opportunities. They were to follow the cloud and the trumpets. They were to depart and journey for three days, and Moses sang as they went. But they rebelled along the way three times, just as they did coming out of Egypt. And then when they got there, they refused to go in and were judged. You'll notice a chart in your syllabus that compares in considerable detail the exodus from Egypt and the exodus, we can call it that, from Mount Sinai. Both of them begin with a Passover. In both cases, they march out in martial array. They're led by the cloud. They go on a three-day journey. There's a song mentioned in the text. And then, as they get going, there's a set of three rebellions. Notice is made concerning Jethro in Exodus. Jethro joins them at Mount Sinai in Numbers. Jethro and his family come up as they leave Mount Sinai, so the, the order is not quite the same, but we're dealing with the same subjects. In both cases now, after the rebellions in the wilderness, we have an arrival. And God reiterates his promises to them. In Exodus 23, follow my angel, he'll lead you into the land. Numbers 13, verse 2, as we just saw, God says that he will take them into the land. In both cases, we have a 40-day period of waiting. We have a rebellion. We have Moses' intercession. We have judgment. And we have plague. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.